This is Jonathan Sassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for March 7th, 2018. So we're going to take a sweep across the country and focus just today on politics, on candidates, progressive candidates who are running for office. And we're going to do that to sort of clear up the archive of the various people that I've been interviewing over the last few weeks as the primary season starts to kick off. And we're going to start in Kansas. Yeah, Kansas. Why not? James Thompson is running for the Democratic nomination in the 4th District in Kansas, which is in the southern part of the state. And in the biggest city in that district is Wichita. James actually was the Democratic nominee in the 2017 special election. That was just a year ago, an election that took place when Mike Pompeo was selected as director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And in a solid Republican district, which at the time was rated quote-unquote safe by the political know-nothings, James fell just seven points short of defeating the now incumbent Ron Estes. And now James is back for a second try a year later, and you can see his full agenda at votejamesthompson.com. That's votejamesthompson.com. And Jim, obviously the first thing that jumped up into my eyes when I was reading about you with great interest was you were a Republican or registered Republican until 2016. Is that right? That's true. I was. I was a registered Republican here in Kansas, um, in Sedgwick County, where I live. We have elected judges. And the only way to vote on who's going to be a judge is to vote in the primary. And so I I was registered so I could do that um, if I wanted to do so, because from time to time, some judges would be in office that I didn't particularly care for or something like that. So, And that's because of your work as, a, as an attorney. Right. I'm a civil rights attorney. And so, um, but I was registered Republican. Um, that's a uh, public record. <laughs> well, it's funny because the analogy is in New York City, um, if you're not a registered Democrat, you really don't count in the primaries, at least, because essentially, actually in the Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn the Democratic vote is what matters in the primary. And if so, if you're an independent, you really are not participating. So I understand your point. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it here. I mean, it's just it's just the opposite out here in, in uh, Kansas. <laughs> right. So just to get to some of the issues that you're running on, I was especially interested in your view about health care, because obviously that's a, a huge issue. And on your um, website, which... Um, you detail a lot of your positions. You talk about being moving towards a single-payer system. You'd be open to it, but you still start with the focus or the emphasis on sort of what you would say market competition demanding, and I'm quoting, demanding insurance companies spend money in providing care and innovative solutions. And so just to play devil's advocate, isn't that the problem that we've left this healthcare uh, challenge crisis to market competition? The that that is definitely part of the problem, and that I mean we've got insurance companies choosing people over profits, and we're not holding them accountable. Um, you know, my uh, position on Medicare for all is that I would like to see that occur. Um, I would like I'm in favor of Bernie's plan, which phases it in over four years. Um, the problem I see, and until we take back control of Congress, is that that's just not going to be 
that's not going to happen until we take back control. Hopefully in 2018, we do take back control and then we can get that passed because I think that that makes the most financial sense. It's also the morally correct thing to do, I think as well. So, Yes. And of course, you'd have to have a Senate in Democratic hands. And then there's this unhinged man who's in the White House who is unlikely to <laughs> sign that bill. So it may be a little bit while. So I, I get your point. So if I can summarize this or interpret it, your approach is to try to solve that current crisis in the first year or two and then move towards Medicare for All. Is that the way you look at it? Um, right. I mean, we need. I think we need to fix the ACA. Um, there are problems with it. I think that uh, given the current political climate, that um, uh, until we get some new people into Congress, that it's going to be hard to get a Medicare for all bill passed. But once we have uh, the votes for it, I am in favor of Bernie Sanders' um, proposed Medicare for all plan. So right. Now, let me just play devil's advocate on that on, in, at two levels. You're right mm-hmm. if we look at the situation now, given the way people talk about healthcare, that Medicare for all seems like a huge mountain to climb. But on the one, other hand, Bernie Sanders, when he first introduced Medicare for All in the Senate the first time, he got exactly zero co-sponsors. Now he has, um, I believe, 13 or 15. I lost track. And the second thing that's really interesting, I'm curious, as a person who talks about small business, I've always thought that if the business community was mobilized around this, they would all be for Medicare for All because all the healthcare costs that businesses now shoulder, they would get rid of overnight. And it's one of the things that uh, companies all around the world don't have to bear. They're not um, paying for those healthcare costs in the same way that U.S.-based companies are. Right. And so they're able to offer products probably cheaper because they don't have that added cost into their um, profit margin. Or wages. The, for They could put the money towards uh, higher wages for their workers, for example. Exactly. Well, and, and that's one of the things I'd like to see our conversation in this country move to, more towards is a discussion about the financial benefits of moving to Medicare for all. Not just, you know, we often comment about, well, everybody should you know, have health care, it should be a right. And I agree with that 100%. But I think that talking about the financial side of it is, is where we gain the real ground with uh, Republicans and businesses. Like you said, small businesses if they know that they don't have to have that burden, they they can start up a business without having to worry about healthcare costs for themselves or their family or their employees, that it's going to drive innovation, that extra $300 a month or whatever, you know, it happens to be that um, a person's not having to pay in for health insurance um, is going to be probably uh, spent as um, disposable income and put back into the economy anyway. So I think that it, it makes sense financially and morally to have a Medicare for all system if we can get the political you know, machine to work. I mean, we have 70 percent of the country that wants it, but then we have uh, you know, a majority in Congress right now who is ignoring the political will of the people, I think. I agree. And I just think that sometimes Democrats make this mistake of relying too heavily on the moral shame you argument, whereas just the dollars and cents to every single company, it's a no brainer. And, you know, again, this is not a left, this is not a, this is not a left wing idea. You go all around the world. And in, I lived in Australia for a couple of years, and that's a pretty actually right of center government at the moment and a relatively conservative country as in terms of the politics. Uh, it's got a labor. Uh, government, but the people are not raving 
left-wingers, and yet they have a Medicare for All system, essentially, and no company in Australia would ever want the American system because of the cost that they would have to bear. Well, and, and the, I think the reason, only reason that we still have it is because we have too much, well, we have money in politics. And, and you know, uh, like Citizens United has allowed that to continue. I think that if we didn't have money in politics, we would see uh, us fall more in line with a lot of the other industrialized countries in the world. So, And I, wa- I want to talk now a little bit about economic views and wages. And I want to start actually, because you emphasize uh, in a couple of places on your website that you yourself went through what you call, I think, difficult circumstances. And maybe you could explain in a minute or two what you mean by that. Uh, I, I grew up in poverty. Um was on welfare um, most of uh, my childhood. I was actually homeless when I was 16. We had moved to Florida, and the job that my stepdad had um, fell through. And so my stepfather, my seven-year-old brother, five-year-old brother, and myself and one of his friends were living out of a van in southern Florida. So it's uh, I, I know what it's like to not have money to pay the electric bill or pay the water bill or having to make a choice between putting food on the table or paying the rent. And so I, I, I know what hardship is like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that I assume makes you especially attuned to the notion of working people's wages and their incomes. And you talk about a Kansas living wage. What does that mean in actual numbers to you? What should, for example, the federal minimum wage be in your view? Well, I'd like to see us move to a $15 minimum wage. I don't think that Kansas could jump to straight to a 15 because our minimum wage here is is the national uh, minimum of seven and a quarter. And I don't think jumping to 15 would be good for small businesses here. But I think a a phased in plan where, where we get there over a few years, um, you know, three to four years where we get up to $15 an hour would be good for Kansas. Now, other places in the country, obviously, you know, are already doing $15 minimum wage. But I think in places like Kansas, where the economy is not as bustling as somewhere like it is on the coast or in New York or um, Chicago, someplace like that, it, we need to stair-step that in for, for businesses so that they don't get the shock of having their the wages doubled on them overnight. So. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always like to remind um, my listeners of two facts. One is if we went to $15 an hour, the federal minimum wage, if someone worked 52 weeks a year, that means not a single moment off every single week, 40 hours a week, that would only be $31,200. And, you know, that's not like great riches. And the yeah, second <laughs> and, and the second thing, I'll ask you to comment on one or both of these points. And the second thing is if you actually look at productivity over the last 30 to 40 years, in other words, how hard workers have been working and the product productivity increases in the economy, the minimum wage should be actually $20 an hour. So the upshot is that people have been robbed consistently of the, their sweat, how hard they've worked. Mm-hmm. I, and I agree. I mean, I think that when we look at um, the way we've um, approached minimum wage, where we go with these huge you know, well, I don't even say huge, but these jumps, you know, every 10 years or so, that's not the way to do it. I think that we need to have um, a minimum wage set that um, is then attached to an inflationary index so that it, it raises or, or rises, I'm sorry, on a, a yearly basis. Um, because, you know, as you point out, the 
the product of our labor is not being paid for. Um, we have uh, essentially stagnant wages, increased productivity, and the, the working class people of this country, um, as they have for quite a while, are getting the shaft. Um, I, I, I don't. I'm not opposed to you know having a higher minimum wage, but I think at a minimum we need to get it up to where um, up to 15 anyway, and then uh, make sure that that keeps r- rising on a yearly basis as opposed to waiting another 10 years to you know to raise it again. So mm-hmm. now um, you're not a first time candidate in the sense that you ran in the special election, and I mentioned this in my introduction, and you came pretty close to winning that special election. So I get the idea of you now taking a second bite at it, but. You're relatively new, I guess, out there in the campaign trail. So how does it feel? What's it been like? And, you know, share with us some uh, stories about the good things, the difficult things that you found as a candidate. Well, you know, the, the good things um, that I've found definitely has been just the, the meeting with people and, and um, listening to people. I think people appreciate having a candidate that's listening to them that they think is is authentic. Um, i I don't try to present myself as anything other than I am. Um, I, you know, learn very quickly that you don't try to blow smoke up people's backsides because they'll uh, recognize that and, and turn off you know, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to talk about. So um, just speaking with people and listening to the issues that they have, making them feel like they are empowered to be a part of the system, which is, I think, part of the problem that we've had in Kansas and that we've had this ultra-conservative government for so long that a lot of the people um, that are just normal, middle-of-the-road people and and to the left of them feel kind of downtrodden. And so the nice thing about the campaign and me getting out there is seeing people go, oh my God, there's there's somebody else that thinks like I do here. That's that's refreshing. So that's been one of the nice things um, about it. You know, the bad thing is, is the intra-party squabbling and petty politics that got kind of goes on behind the, the scenes. You know, I I'm, had this shocked. Naive view. I'm, I'm shocked, shocked, <laughs> shocked to hear that there's petty politics going on behind the scenes. Uh, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it's when I decided to run, I, you know, I had this, I'd never ran for office. I just was tired of sitting on the sidelines and, you know, just kind of came to the conclusion, you know, if not me, then who uh, I needed to stop being a Facebook warrior and actually get out try to make a difference. Um, and I had this naive view that, well, okay, once I get the nomination, there's going to be this big kumbaya moment and everybody will, you know, fall in line and we're going to go forward and do good and win as Democrats. And then, you know, that's not the reality of it. It's, there's still, um, a lot of uh, petty politics within the democratic party itself, um, that needs to be addressed. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with money and politics getting that out of it is um, um, a good way to get some of th- rid of some of that. There will always be you know, problems like that, I would imagine. But that that was kind of a shock to me, though, some of the uh, things from within my own party. I actually had a, a former congressional candidate who gave me the best piece of advice, which is that some of your worst enemies will come from within your own party. So, Right. As they say, keep your friends close and keep your enemies even closer, um, something <laughs> right. like that, right? Um, uh, it, so, 
as we kind of wrap up, uh, to sort of ask that question another way, is there something that makes you optimistic as you talk to people that the kind of things you're talking about uh, on your agenda will also resonate with the general public, given that you know your seat is considered to be somewhat um, in play, at least that's the way the party looks at it. And does that have something to do with the environment that you're seeing, what people want, and the thought that people are just needing, as you point out, something progressive and common sense? Well, the... Yeah, you know, I, I get that question a lot. Why? Why do you think Kansas can be flipped blue? Well, in 2016 and 2017, we saw a lot of movement to the left here in Kansas. We saw um, the women's march, uh, of course, in, in January 2017, where we had about 5,000 women here in Wichita that went out for that march, which is a, a huge march for a city the size of Wichita. Um, we saw our state legislature that was um, voting to um, overturn some of the things that uh, Brownback was wanting to do. And we reversed the horrendous tax cuts that he had imposed. And we saw this, this pushback towards the middle here in Kansas. Bernie uh, won here two to one during the presidential uh, primary um, for the caucus. Trump was not the one who won here. It was uh, Cruz who won. So this, this idea that we're a red state and it's just so solidly pro-Trump is really not accurate for Kansas, I think. People here are much more progressive than a lot of people want to give them credit for. Um, right. We well, saw the, the, this the modern energy. day, the modern day craziness of Sam Brownback contrasts with the people used to um, associate with Kansas, like the Nancy Kassebaums of the world, the so-called moderate Republicans, whether you believe that there's such a thing, but it wasn't as extreme and unhinged like Brownback. Right. Well, and, and with you know with Brownback being so extreme, I think that there is a, a definite um, reaction to it. You know, with um, with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction at some point. And I think that that's what we're kind of seeing now in Kansas. We're seeing people pushing back, tired of ultra conservative politics, saying, "Look, we need common sense. You know, we need um, a person that's going to go and represent the people of Kansas, not just the powerful Koch brothers." With the primary election in Illinois just two weeks away, I had a chance to catch up with David Gill, who is running in a crowded field for the Democratic nomination for the 13th Congressional District. It's a seat currently held by a Republican and is rated right now likely Republican, but you know that could change pretty rapidly in the environment that we're looking at today. What intrigued me about David is he is a doctor. And not surprising for a progressive and a doctor, he is running hard on Medicare for all. He's actually been a member of Physicians for a National Healthcare Program for over 25 years. And people who don't know Physicians for a National Health Program, you should check them out. They're a terrific group. They've been a relentless advocate for Medicare for all. And what I especially like about David's advocacy for Medicare for all is that he points out 
the economic benefits of Medicare for All. And you can read more about that position and his other progressive views at David Gill, and that's with two L's, David, G-I-L-L, 2018.com. That's David Gill, 2018.com. And David, one of the first things that obviously jumps out that um, you're campaigning on is you are a doctor and you have been for a very long time a supporter of single payer Medicare for all. In fact, you were very active in Physicians for a National Health Care Plan, which is a great group that's been doing a lot of work on that. And so first, how did you come to that realization about Medicare for all? And the second thing I'm curious is how that's resonating on the campaign trail. Sure. Well, I, as you indicate, I joined PNHP about 25 years ago, and uh, very early in my medical career, it became clear to me that the way that we finance healthcare here in America is really a travesty. You know, I, I could tell you literally thousands of stories of individuals that have suffered and died simply because of the amount of money they have, or the type of insurance they have or don't have, and. Uh, watching that, uh, I was, you know, sort of horror struck as a young physician and uh, heard about PNHP and did a lot of reading with regards to how healthcare is financed in other countries, uh, learned about the myths that are propagated by the opposition. And it became clear to me, especially in taking care of a lot of Medicare patients also, that uh, the Medicare system is a good system and there's no reason why we ought not to extend it to everybody. And so uh, I've been a passionate supporter of single payer all that time, you know, for a quarter century. And it's uh, it's terrific the way that it resonates throughout the district. You know, it's uh, when I joined PNHP 25 years ago, uh, it was, oh, perhaps looked askance at by the general public. You know, it used to poll at 20 percent support. And now that level of support is upwards of 60 percent. And perhaps even higher when I'm campaigning and they're listening to a doctor tell those horror stories. And uh, even amongst physicians, uh, the level of support is at about 60%. So uh, for years, people said, you can't talk about that. You you know, that's a a losing proposition. But uh, I've always talked about it in spite of that because it's right. And I think that over time, the public has caught up and come to understand that we need to free ourselves from the for-profit private health insurance industry. And I'm guessing you're seeing a big change among people's awareness of that, even from the last time you ran in 2012, and you almost beat uh, the current incumbent, the Republican. I mean, just in a few years, that conversation has changed. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. I mean, when he first introduced Medicare for All in the Senate, he got absolutely no other co-sponsors, zero. And now he has over a dozen co-sponsors in the Senate for his bill. Now, I'm not saying that's going to pass tomorrow, but the conversation has shifted dramatically. Yeah, very much so. And I see it out on the campaign trail. And I think uh, one of the unintended consequences of all of the discussion that the Republicans put forth uh, at, at the House level and within the Senate last spring as they were debating health care reform is that it really laid bare what it is that we're talking about. You know, I think that a lot of people, as they watched that, came to understand that the problems that they have in their own household in dealing with insurance companies, that that's everywhere, that the insurance companies are running the show. And uh, I think that uh, putting it right there in front of people on such public display 
really ultimately was to the benefit of those of us who are pushing back against those for-profit private health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things that uh, jumped out in terms of your uh personal history is the way in which you grew up in a difficult circumstances. Your father passed away quite young, 37, I believe, and you then put yourself through college and through medical school by taking on a, a bunch of jobs. And you can talk about that, but what seems to me that sort of informed your own sense of what happens to other people at work and probably structures and informs day-to-day your support for obviously economic issues like $15 minimum wage and other issues. You're exactly right, Jonathan. You know, I think that we're all a product of our biography and growing up under difficult circumstances like that, you know, if I wanted something extra, I had to work. And that's why I started bussing tables and washing dishes in a restaurant when I was 13 years old. And, um, and, and I've always worked, worked my way through medical school by mopping the floors of a laundromat in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you know, and I, I watched my grandmother uh, work as a waitress for 60 years. She's got the varicose veins to prove it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I have a, a deep empathy for people that work hard and especially for those people that are working hard and not being rewarded for their work, which is all too common in this country over the last two generations. You know, for 40 years, uh, the American worker has been more and more productive every year, but sees less and less uh, return to him or herself for the work that they're doing. Is it, you know, this is really a trickle up economy where uh, the productivity is rewarded to those at the very top. And uh, so, and I, you know, and there's steps that can be taken to reverse it. You know, that one of those is, uh, the fight for $15 an hour. I'm very passionate with regards to that. If if minimum wage had kept up with inflation, it would be over $22 an hour now. If it had kept up with CEO pay, it would be over $30 an hour. And so I I think uh, we're being very reasonable when we talk about $15 an hour. Good for you that you put out those stats. We talk about this on the podcast a lot about productivity and how hard people have worked. And in fact, it would be about 20 bucks an hour uh, if you took into account productivity. And so when you demand and campaign for $15 an hour, that in of itself is not really that big a deal. It'll, it would make a big difference. It would, you know, obviously double the current minimum oh, wage, yeah. but still, you know, a family of four wouldn't be able to survive on $15 an hour if they were working f- 52 weeks a year and depended on that income. That's only about $32,000 in change over the year. And that's without health care without benefits and working mm-hmm. every single week. So that kind of demand, $15 an hour, seems outstanding and uh, to some outrageous in the current context, but it's nowhere what it should be. Exactly. It's it's really not a radical proposition at all. And so in terms of those kinds of issues that you're campaigning on, they're more and more in the mainstream, but let's face it, and you state this very clearly on your website, your differences with the Democratic Party elites. Let's face it, so much of the reason you're laughing, I can hear I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. get it. I want to get into this in a soft way. I don't I know that the the battle is to re- retain, retake the House largely because as you point out in your website, the threat that Donald Trump represents. But the sure. fact is what you have articulated has not been within the mainstream of the Democratic Party and, in fact, has been opposed by many people in the party. And 
one would argue that we're in the place we're at with Donald Trump because we didn't go, we Democrats didn't go around the country, meaning the elites didn't, the people who represented the party didn't talk about the kinds of issues that seem people seem to care about, certainly on economics, single payer, $15 minimum wage. So tell me a little bit about your own disagreements with the party and where that's come out now. Well, you know, I think that here in Illinois 13, uh, this is just a, uh, small reflection of the big schism that we saw on full display during Bernie's campaign against uh, Senator Clinton. Mm-hmm. And it, there's just no denying that my party, you know, since the late 70s to the mid 80s, uh, has also become corporate owned in the same way that the Republicans are, perhaps to a lesser extent. And uh, on uh, social issues, you know, the Democrats remain Democrats, so to speak. But uh, I don't see eye to eye with those at the top that uh, stand with the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry and the fossil fuel industry. And uh, I am not their favorite son. I had to defeat them in the primary of 2012, got outspent five to one. But through a lot of grassroots work, we were able to get that done. And uh, even after that very successful campaign, you know, my message won in this district by seven points. Uh, we had the misfortune that year of having a liberal independent on the ballot who took 7.3%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was saying all the same things as me. So I wound up falling short by three tenths of 1%. And after that, uh, the National Party uh, wanted to go in a more moderate direction, which, and, uh, you know, I stepped aside. I went to work uh, as the assistant director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. And their moderate candidate went on to lose by 50 times what I lost by. And, uh, you know, what's really striking to me is uh, then you have all those numbers in front of you. And for a party to continue to shun someone who could actually bring them a congressional seat uh, is, you know, I think speaks volumes about where my lifelong party is. Uh, I consider myself an FDR Democrat. And sadly, uh, my party has moved far, far away from uh, the types of things that Franklin Roosevelt was talking about with his second Bill of Rights. And it's a shame. And, you know, ultimately, I think that now the crisis with this president in the White House uh, is so great that my differences with the party uh, have to be put on the back burner temporarily uh, because uh, we simply must establish a a House Democratic majority uh, to stand up against what this gentleman stands for. And but, but those differences will need to be uh, addressed ultimately. And in a certain way, uh, one can do two things at the same time, hold two ideas at the same time. Uh, obviously, yes, uh, the House needs to be in Democratic hands largely to stop the worst of the worst, the tax cuts and all the things that we we know about. But those differences in some way with the party are out there in terms of your actual agenda and what you're campaigning on, certainly single payer, although it's become much more um, accepted within the party to support single payer Medicare for all, but other issues, obviously, you know, you do have those differences just on the basis of how you campaign. And that's kind of always been a surprise to me that the party didn't understand, and that largely has to do with the corruption of um, money in politics, but the party did not take on those kinds of issues that are winning issues among people. And you're probably seeing that on the campaign trail. Oh, sure. And I'm, yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. You know, essentially, I won this seat in 2012, certainly uh, to lose it by three-tenths of 1% with a liberal independent on the ballot, and, and then to vastly outperform 
the more moderate messenger that they put forth after that, um, it, it, it's crystal clear that people respond to the type of thing that I'm talking about. And to, to me, uh, as an individual, as a doctor talking about these things and, you know, it goes on and on, Jonathan, uh, I'm up against a DCCC back candidate in the primary who is not on board with single payer. Uh, she talks in very bland measures about <clears throat> making sure that everybody has good insurance and that life is more comfortable for people and some vague raising of the minimum wage, but, uh, there's no passion there and there's no specifics and there's nothing that really answers the demands that people have uh, for improving their economic circumstances. So has the DCCC, in fact, endorsed somebody specific in the primary? They've not taken a hands-off approach to whoever wins the primary as our candidate? Well, there's not a formal endorsement, but there's ties to uh, big pots of money, they have individuals uh, such as Senator Durbin and Congresswoman Schakowsky that have gotten behind uh, this individual that I'm running against. So, you know, you can look through the FEC itemized receipts and see the connections that are there to the party. You can see who's working on the campaigns. And and so it's it's sort of a an unspoken endorsement, uh, if you will. And that's OK. I mean, we we've got a bunch of little people um up and down the district that are knocking on people's doors and engaging in uh, sort of uh, hand-to-hand combat, as it were, uh, a very grassroots type of campaign. And we're hoping that we can succeed in the same way that I did in the 2012 primary. Mm -hmm. And so for for my last question, you kind of uh, telegraphed it. What's been out there that you've seen a specific anecdote or experience that sticks with you that represents what this campaign has sort of tapped into? I know you've been a candidate before, so you're not a newbie, but is there anything that happened that sticks with you that you remember day to day that's different? Well, I think the the passion that's out there, there certainly is this blue wave that's out there. You know, I think the election of uh, President Trump really stirred a lot of people. And so I, frankly, I don't know that that was necessary for me to succeed. I think that I can beat this Republican congressman in a two-person race. Uh, there won't be an independent on the ballot this time around, but but it's really been overwhelming and it's exciting. I, I went down to a little town in Jersey County, Illinois, a couple of weeks ago and uh, had a town hall and several people came up to me afterwards and said, I thought I knew what I was going to do in the primary, but now that I heard you speak, uh, you have a passion and actually speak to the types of things that I'm concerned about. And uh, so I'm on board and we're adding volunteers uh, everywhere. I don't know that there's one specific event. Uh, There's a lot of things that I see in my work as a physician. I still take a couple shifts a month and there's not a shift that goes by that I don't see something that touches me and drives me. And that I talk about on the campaign trail, I had a 60 year old gentleman about four weeks ago, hardworking guy, uh, but like so many Americans, he lives paycheck to paycheck. He has insurance, but like so many Americans, it's bad insurance. And he had belly pain and was told by his doctor to go to the emergency department. But he was looking at a $500 copay to come through the door of the ER. So he stayed home for 16 or 18 hours until it got bad enough that he came in and met me. And he had waited too long. His appendix had ruptured and he had developed uh, life-threatening sepsis, no bacterial growth in his bloodstream. And just so unnecessary and wouldn't happen in any other developed country in the world. And, you know, those types of stories really resonate uh, 
when I go out and talk uh, with voters and pe- people get it, you know, because they, they have to deal with these insurance companies. And uh, so I, I'm really confident that uh, the fix is coming. It's, it's only a question of when. It's not a question of if. Last but not least, on our trip through the country looking and talking to candidates, we go back out west to California to the 22nd Congressional District for a chat with Rico Franco, whose campaign can be found at ricofranco.com. The district Rico is running in is in the central part of the state and includes parts of Fresno and Tulare County, so it's fairly rural. And what I like about this district, and we're going to have a little fun with this, the incumbent is that really nutty Republican, Devin Nunes, you know, the guy who is chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Now, why they call that committee intelligence when there isn't much of that in that committee, generally speaking, and certainly not when it comes to the chairperson. And Nunes is in a feud, which he will lose eventually, with Stephen Colbert. And he recently said in attacking Colbert, quote, the left controls not only the universities in this country, but they also control Hollywood in this country and the mainstream media. So conservatives in this country are under attack. They attack people who are trying to get to the truth, close quote. So before we get to Rico, I thought a little chuckle here with Colbert would be worth it. Nunes claimed Colbert hadn't asked him for a response or didn't know of Colbert's little skit that Colbert did where he made fun of Nunes. So Colbert responded. Hey, hi, Stephen Colbert. Is the congressman in? He's not in? Unfortunately, no, I'm sorry. No, okay. No, unfortunately, we can't film in the office. Okay, could I leave something for him? Of course. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> Release my memo. So, so either your staff didn't tell you that I charged into your office, or you're not telling the truth. So is Devin Nunes a liar? Not that I know of. <laughs> but still, Nunes was a pretty good sport about the whole thing. I enjoy the attack. If they want to continue to attack me, that's fine. Great, because we've got shows all week. In fact... (laughs) In fact, let's show some of the jokes we didn't use until now. Does it ever surprise you as ironic that Devin Nunes is the head of something called the Intelligence Committee? Um, I'm not going to comment on that. No, okay. But okay, let's get serious. Let's get to Rico, the candidate, Rico Franco, who is like James and David before in our podcast, not a longtime politician, and among other things, would be a good ally with David if they were both elected because Rico, like David, supports Medicare for All, and he's pledged to co-sponsor it if elected to Congress. 
Enrico, so the first thing I noticed is you did go to the Wharton School of Business where a certain other individual who serves in public office in the Oval Office also attended. But rather than go down that road, I'm curious what you learned at the Wharton School of Business that then made you think about issues like uh, minimum wage and the rights of unions to organize and so on? Because normally people coming out of the Wharton School have much more of a straightforward business attitude. Well, first of all, um, thanks for having me here this morning on the show, or at least for the recording. I wanted to say that when I went to Wharton, we were actually required in our curriculum to take business ethics. Okay, I got in there as soon as you know, right after the whole Enron scandal happened. So and wait, the, the, those are those, those are not mutually exclusive terms. Business at business ethics. Just wanted to make sure. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. Um, you know, and and I'd love to tell you examples about it. Please but do. But this was after the whole Enron crisis, mm-hmm. and so you know, at what point do you look at yourself as a business manager, where your fiduciary duties to your stockholders and your and all the other shareholders you have, stakeholders? actually override the moral imperatives that you have about things. For instance, you know, Talisman Energy went into Africa and to Sudan and started drilling for oil in the area, which led to a civil war long after they pulled out of the area. Unfortunately, because they put in infrastructure in there to extract oil, well, now everyone's fighting over the infrastructure, right? You open this Pandora's box. So that's one of the things that we used to discuss there. But when I was there during graduation, 70% of the students at Wharton were going into finance. And I think at a higher level of that, we're going into investment banking right on Wall Street, right? Just up, just up the uh, highway from Philadelphia into New York. And so the culture was so much that everybody wanted to do that because everyone wanted to make the big money, work for Goldman Sachs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we had people who were coming in and you know, coming into the same job interviews with us that weren't even part of Wharton. And they were part of the computer science and engineering program, which might be smarter nowadays if you actually look at the way that Wall Street works. But the part that really, really interested me, it wasn't just all making money by pushing money on paper but actually generating something, providing a service, charging clients or customers for it, building something, and then selling that out on the market. That was fun to me, watching how global markets worked in that way. Mm-hmm. And managing all of that means trying to make order out of chaos. So whether it was studying an organizational behavior and managing employees and people and seeing how they can be best utilized within a company, as well as also providing the best for them, is what I really got attracted to. So unlike them, I did not go to Wall Street as soon as graduation hit. And I was lucky enough to join a company called Guardsmark, a national security card company, and got put right back here in my hometown of Fresno, California, mm-hmm. to open up a branch. So while everybody else was, you know, had their eyes glued to Excel formulas and spreadsheets all day long, I was driving around a 90-mile radius from my house visiting security guards day and night, all hours, going and knocking on the doors of refineries and doing sales calls, hiring them, firing them, the whole nine yards. And were they unionized, those security guards? When I started out, no. Mm -hmm. And then um, I grew the business during the Great Recession. Uh, we more than doubled in the area, and then I went out to the Bay Area to do it on a national level and expanded from there. At that point, some of my officers were unionized. 
Mm-hmm. Because obviously, as you know, and you actually talk about this in your um, positions on your website, which is ricofranco.com, rico, R-I-C-O, franco.com. You talk about the important right of having a union and you support the right of workers to legally unionize. So that must have been something that you thought about during your time in that company. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started out in in the Fresno area, I had only 33 employees, 22 years old, and they give you 33 employees, ages 25, I think, to 79 years of age. It's a big shock for, you know, a kid coming out of college. Mm -hmm. And so that's 33 opinions that I had coming at me left and right every single day. Well, then that grew to 90 people and 90 opinions. And at one point, I think 120 or something like that nationwide. When you're dealing with that, it's tough as a manager. Because you do have to manage a team that large. When you have a union, you have one voice that speaks for them. And it makes things a lot easier in many sense. And so when I had to deal with our uh, representative from the union, when they were organized, it was nice. We have to know a lot in California. I don't know if you've ever done anything with California labor laws. Mm, you bit. are like a little mini lawyer <laughs> out here, knowing the overtime rules it's, um, and just everything. California labor is labor laws are very, very different. But when you have that collective bargaining agreement to follow, everybody follows it. So it's not a top-down mentality from a company saying, this is what we're mandating upon our employees. This is where you can come together and say, you know what? The employees have also spoken. We have come together as an agreement. We have written that agreement down, and it's very easy for us to follow. And California actually has one of the few um, labor laws for uh, farm workers, actually. That goes back to when Jerry Brown was governor the first time around in the 1970s. Mm Mm-hmm. And that all started right over here, you know, in the the Central Valley. And it wasn't by wealthy labor organizers. You know, this came from immigrant farm laborers or migrant farm laborers, as we call them as well, too, who used to travel the United States to do all this work. But it was so much easier when we had that contract. You know, yeah, negotiations get a little bit tough sometimes, but you come out with a collective bargaining agreement for two years, three years, five years, and you don't have to look back. And the beautiful thing about it was, I carry that in my pocket like a little, like a lawyer carries a little mini U.S. Constitution. And so when we would see clients and say, you know what, we're coming up at the new year. We're going to ask for a rate increase so we can pay our employees more. And this is where we're showing you what we're paying them. And I would show them the collective bargain agreement and say, if you want to continue this level of service, this is what I have to continue to pay them. And this is what we're going to have to do to come together to work out these costs with you. And our clients were very, very open and receptive to that because they knew we weren't just trying to stick them to get more money and save it for the fat cats at the top, right? Okay. So let's move – let's try to address some other issues in a shorter framework. And let's talk about actually healthcare. When you talked about coming out of the school of business and thinking about how things have to be organized and be efficient essentially, it made me think that this relates to your support for Medicare for All. And I wonder if you can make the business case for Medicare for All, which I've often done. I think we often make the moral case, but make the business case for Mm -hmm. Medicare for All. It's simple. It does not work in the private sector, period, because it does not follow supply, demand, and price rules. The customer goes in, the the patient, the supplier, the doctor tells the customer or the patient what it is they're going to buy, 
and neither the patient nor the doctor know what the price is for that service or that medication. So you cannot make an informed marketplace decision, especially when it comes to healthcare, because healthcare isn't something that we buy like a car or another durable good. When you need healthcare, you need healthcare, period. So that's why it doesn't work in the private sector. Now, when you're talking about the business case for it, Medicare for all makes healthcare available to everybody in the country so that we are all healthy and the burden is taken off of the individual. So for right now, I pay hundreds of dollars every single month for what I think is an adequate level of healthcare for myself. That's a lot of money in my paycheck that I have to pay somebody. Well, it's, it it's taken off, off my pocketbook. It's, it's taken off and the now individual. For an employer, if you're an employer, you don't have to worry about that either. So I talked to somebody who says, you know, why do I want this? I already spend $400,000 a year for my employees. They don't have to pay a single dime. They get great health care, and they come to work healthy. said, Medicare for all is the same thing, but you know what? You can put that $400,000 back in your pocket. What would you do if you're a businessman with $400,000 extra? We have, you know, one of the companies I worked for was 17 people. Two of the people, though, were the only ones above 35 years of age. So if we shopped for a group plan, it would have skewed everybody else's premiums, monthly premiums up higher. And so they said, you know what? We can't do this. It's not fair. Go out and get your own, and we will reimburse you as much as we can. But the idea that anybody wants to go into business to provide health care for their employees is just absurd. The idea that employees have to go out and find jobs that they may or may not want simply because they need health care is absurd. No other country does it like this in the world. And we have to change and adapt with modern times. Okay. So you've been out on the campaign trail. You're uh, essentially a first-time candidate, and you're going across your district. What has it been like as a candidate? And if you could actually talk personally about it, some of the difficulties, challenges, some of the good things, not so much in a issues sort of theoretical way, but what has it been like? Uh, exciting and invigorating. I think personally, I'm, I'm kind of one of these guys that just loves to talk to people, right? I mean, I used to, I told you, I managed all these employees. And I used to do sales and do a lot of uh, operations work. And I think that's been the fun because we look at the campaign and, and the structure of how it's working right now, not as a traditional campaign machine, but more like a startup company, which is what I come from. So we've got various people doing various things. And as it grows, we switch those responsibilities a lot. But being out here in this area, I love it. I don't know how much you know about the district, but it's about 50 miles from tip to tip, which is pretty small, actually. And there's a lot of rural communities out here, Spanish-speaking communities, and they're agricultural-based. Some of them have some little pockets where they have some manufacturing, et cetera. But the, the fun of it has been literally learning and being able to kind of nerd out and geek out on all the intricacies of things. You know, we hear a lot about water, and we do have water issues here in the Central Valley, but very few people understand that we can't build any new construction unless we can show where we're going to get that water and how we're going to store it. So whatever kind of big dreams you have of building a new building or bringing businesses here, et cetera, et cetera, none of that will ever come to fruition unless we actually have water in the area. And, and that's been the fun of it. You know, the hard part about it sometimes is that you will get discouraged from the very, very radical supporters of Devin Nunes and, and some even from Trump, you know, and with the campaign being so many volunteers it's, and they're, they're, this is their first time as well being involved in a campaign. 
they'll, that'll sting a little bit. It's rejection. I don't know if you've ever been in sales before, but um, it's 90% rejection, but you go after that 10%. And with this, it's different because it's actually not even 90% rejection. But when you get that, sometimes it'll sting. But as we're going out canvassing, knocking on doors, which we've been doing now for two months, then you get that person who's really excited. You get that person who's, you know what, I'm going to tell everybody about this. And then the word continues to spread. And you can see that the majority of the voters out here don't even really know what's going on in terms of the campaigns or the elections because it's knocking on doors what gets the vote out, right? 386,000 registered voters, only 124,000 will come out for the primary, hopefully more. But that's statistically what it has been. And so it's been a lot of fun personally kind of going over this data, knocking on doors and seeing the reactions from people, especially in the Latino community, when they see the name Franco there. Because, you know, we've never had a Latino be a, who has been elected to Congress from the Central Valley here. And the, de- the demographics, as I understand it, they're about 40 to 45 percent of the people identifies Hispanic, which covers, you know, a, a whole range of um, people who come from various countries. Correct. And, you know, that's one of our cultural issues too, right? I'm a fourth generation Mexican American. Mm -hmm. My family's been here in the city of Fresno for more than a hundred years, but I'm the only one out of all of my generation to actually learn Spanish from birth. I'm the last one. Mm -hmm. And that's been one of the issues we have as well, too. Have we had Latino politicians here? Yes. You know, of course we have on the local level, and on the, um, you know, even kind of coming out from the state level as well, too. But on the federal level, we haven't broken that that other kind of glass ceiling. I don't want to take that away from you know, the women's uh, issues, but it's it's still been a barrier for us. And it's really been a barrier between in, within our own culture. Because you see, Latinos have struggled here in the area of, well, how do we get ahead? Do we abandon our culture? And just try and assimilate as much as possible, which was the theory of my grandparents, to be honest with you. Or do you actually say, no, I don't have to. I am proud of who I am. I'm proud of my language. I'm part of my culture. Being American does not mean I have to abandon that. And so that's the first time, I think, really in this area that we are seeing a resurgence of that. During the initial labor movement for farm workers here in the area in Cesar Chavez, that came up. But again, they were seen as disruptors, right? They fought for what they needed to in terms of getting the rights to those workers, but they weren't fully accepted when it came to the rest of the political arena. That is now changing. So you used to be afraid of speaking Spanish on the campaign trail. We embrace it now. And how is that? How is the debate on immigration, you know, which has been very, very sharp in recent months and certainly in the past year, how has that shaped that what you just described? Has it made it more intense and more in people's minds? I'm glad you brought that up. Immigration reform here has huge, huge bipartisan support because it's affecting the farm labor economics on all this. So if you've got people here in an agriculture-based society that cannot get labor, they're going to want something done about that. So everyone here supports DACA, and and they support the Dreamers. But here's the other part that they're afraid of. If these people come out to vote for Dreamers and for DACA, then what other things are they going to come out to vote for in terms of leaning Democratic? Because I think it was Cesar Chavez who said, you know, once somebody gets a taste of social change, it cannot be stopped. And we saw that back in the 90s with Governor Pete Wilson, 
who tried to put in some, you know, very, very anti-immigrant laws. And that's what got all the Latinos to register to vote in California and made it as blue and democratic as it is today because they still vote. Mm. So remember, California used to be a swing state. A lot of people forget about that. We had Republican governors here. Not anymore because of that. But the thing is, is as much as it's a bipartisan issue here in the Central Valley, you have to understand that voter suppression here and old-fashioned intimidation tactics are still alive and well. Intimidating them at the polls, helping people fill out their ballots in English when they don't understand English, and simply throwing ballots away. That is still very much alive and well here in the area. And now it's time for our robber barons segment. And this week, the robber barons are the supporters in the U.S. Senate, including 12 Democrats. This shouldn't surprise people if you've been watching the Democratic Party for a while, of a bill that would roll back, let me underscore, roll back some banking regulations that were put in place after the financial crisis that devastated millions of lives. And as Bernie Sanders pointed out Monday on his website, the Congressional Budget Office, when it was asked about this bill, estimated that the bill, which is called the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. Now, let me just pause for a moment. Don't you love these Orwellian names that they come up with? I mean, they're rolling back banking regulations, which would put the lives of millions of people, their financial lives of millions of people at stake, and they're calling it consumer protection. I mean, that is the height of Orwellian name-calling. Anyway, what the Congressional Budget Office found was that this act would, quote, increase the likelihood that a large financial firm with assets of between $100 billion and $250 billion would fail. And this is exactly what happened in the financial crisis. And that's why the reforms are put in place to require banks not to engage in this kind of illegal and crazy and essentially reckless behavior that hurt so many people. Now, the bill, and you're going to probably read about this, is all dressed up and marketed as a giving relief to small community banks. Now, that would be fine if that was the only thing it would be doing, but the real big deal is that it lowers the capital requirements on big banks, meaning capital requirements means how much real assets a bank has in-house to cover its loans. So great, that's all we need, right? Rolling back regulations that potentially will bring forth another crisis. And that's why the supporters of this bill, including 12 Democrats, are the robber barons of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, those candidates who have had the courage to step up and run for public office. 
It's not an easy thing to do. And those candidates are James Thompson, David Gill, and Rico Franco. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please do become a sponsor of the podcast. You can do so at workinglife.org. Just click on the podcast tab. Look forward to having you back next week.